The views and opinions expressed by the individuals in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of its producers, Metaphor Creative Media, its management, or affiliates. Police officers were witness to some of the most amazing things in life. Some comical, some horrendous, and some just plain miraculous. When asked why you went into law enforcement, most officers will tell you because it's like having a front row seat to the greatest show on earth. Today, we saved you a front row seat. This is Observations. From Broadcast Beat Studios in Oakland Park, Florida, Metaphor Creative Media presents a show that gives you a personal glimpse of what law enforcement officers see and do in their typical and not-so-typical day of work. From walking the beat to detective, Rob has 35 years of law enforcement experience. Although the staff are all active or former law enforcement, any views, opinions, and all other show content are in no way official views, statements, or policies of any law enforcement agency. To talk to our host, call the podcast studio toll-free at 888-511-COPS. That's 888-511-2677. Hello and welcome to Observations. My name is Rob L. and I'll be your host. If you haven't uh, tuned in last week, this is our second edition. Last week was our inaugural ed- uh, edition of Observations. Uh, it's the podcast, so we're going to put you in the front row to the greatest show on earth. We're going to talk about different topics, uh, current, past topics, police uh, topics, and uh, we're going to have a great show tonight. Just uh, before we get started, let me tell you a little bit about myself. I started my police career in 1984 with the New York City Police Department, and in 1985 I was assigned to the 60th Precinct in Coney Island. <coughs> After three years, I was assigned to a plainclothes unit, and the following year I went to an investigative unit. Uh, in that precinct. Uh, yeah, I, I vested out after 17 years with the department due to health issues that my wife was experiencing and we moved to Florida and started with the sheriff's office. The guys in New York thought I was crazy because we had a 20 year retirement and I was three years short, but family comes first. I did what I had to do for my family. I left August 31st, 2001 and missed 9-11 by a few weeks. Looking back, it was the best decision I ever made. They say everything happens for a reason. Fast forward to 2003, I decided to write a book after so many people I had spoken to said, you have so many stories, you should write a book. So I attempted to, and I interviewed anyone that would give me a story. Eventually, I had sent the book to an agent who didn't think there was a market for it at the time. My wife, who was my biggest critic at the time, said, that's because your book sucks, even though she denies it to this day. And fast forward to about a year and a half ago, I was talking with Danny and Tony, the producers of the show, and mentioned the book. They felt it might be a great idea for a podcast, and here we are. Hopefully, this podcast will allow you to look at us a little differently. The stories you hear are meant to be enlightening and entertaining. So pull up a chair, make yourself comfortable. We always say this show is your front row seat to the greatest show on earth, but unfortunately, sometimes it's also the saddest show on earth. Lately, every time we turn on the news, there's another story about officers dying from 911-related illnesses or being killed in the line of duty. 
Recently, New York City detective Lou Alvarez succumbed to 911-related cancer after enduring 68 bouts of chemotherapy. Detective Alvarez was a warrior until the end, fighting for the 9-11 compensation fund to be continued. Though he lost his battle with cancer, he won the war after the bill was passed through both the House and the Senate. The president is expected to sign this bill, which run through the years 2090. <clears throat> Sadly, this past Sunday, the Broward Sheriff's Office lost one of its own. Deputy Benjamin Nintz, who was just 30 years old, was killed in the line of duty while responding as a backup for a domestic violence call, and his vehicle was broadsided by a pickup truck. Deputy Nintz was transported to the hospital where he succumbed to his injuries. He leaves behind a wife and two small children. Deputy Nintz graduated from the police academy in 2018 and served with the United States Army. Our prayers go out to him, his family, and the Broward Sheriff's Office. On a different note, sadly, a video depicting New York City police officers being doused with buckets of water was in the news. In one instance, which took place in Harlem, two officers while making an arrest were doused with water thrown from a bucket, and a third officer was hit in the head with the bucket. The second incident, which occurred in Brooklyn, depicts two officers sopping away, walking away as the buckets of water are dumped on them. The video was sickening to watch, not only because the officers were victimized by the people they have sworn to protect, but also because they took no action. At the very least, those responsible should have been arrested and charged right there on the spot. After the video went public, the New York PD's chief of department made a statement stating, any cop who thinks that it's all right to walk away from something like that should maybe consider whether or not this is the right profession for them. This statement was made on Tuesday. I'm happy to say, as of Wednesday, three arrests have been made. Okay, that video was absolutely disgusting to watch. Uh, it, it, it sickened me. We protect people, we, and um, it, it, sometimes it's a very thankless job, unfortunately. The police walked away. You, you, to get respect, you have to give respect, but you also have to demand respect. And by walking away and not taking action at that time, they lost a lot of respect. We're the police. We enforce the laws. We're here to help people. We're not there to be abused. We don't get paid to be abused. We don't get paid to beat up. We don't get paid to be shot. It's, you know, we do this to help you. Um, you know, thankfully, the police department did make arrests. The detectives got involved. They investigated. They were able to identify some suspects and were able to make that arrest. When I was coming up, um, you know, the first thing I was told is at the end of the day, you go home. The most important thing you can do on this job as a police officer is to go home to your family. They say it's better to be tried by 12 than to be carried by 6, and I've always lived by that credo. Today, the state of affairs with the police department, we're painted in a very negative brush um, by everybody, politicians, um, you know, in New York City, Mayor de Blasio, has not really stood by his police. And some of the higher-ups as, as well have not, and it, it's very disheartening. Another topic I'd like to speak about tonight is compliance. In society, there are rules and regulations that everyone must or should obey. It starts in the home. There are rules at school, work, and play. And when you break those rules, there are consequences. At home, when our children don't listen, they're punished. At school, there's extra homework, detention, or suspension, depending on the severity of the infraction. At work, it could be demotion or termination. 
if there are no consequences and bad behavior goes unchecked, it can progress and the consequences more severe. Out in the streets, break the laws and there are consequences. They can range from a verbal warning, citation, or physical arrest, depending on the infraction. So the word of the day is compliance, which means the art of complying with a desire, demand, or proposal. If we comply with the rules and regulations, obey the laws, there are no consequences. When dealing with law enforcement out on the street, the key word is compliance. A person doesn't have to like or agree with the situation at hand, but they do have to comply. It's the law. There are avenues that can be taken if you don't like or agree with the actions taken by law enforcement. During a traffic stop, the time to argue is not during the stop. You can disagree, but the time to argue is in the court of law, where both sides are presented to a judge. During an arrest, compliance is the key and saves lives, both the officers and the offenders. Very recently, the case of Eric Garner, who died in July of 2014 in Staten Island, New York, was back in the news after criminal charges were brought against the New York City police officers who allegedly choked Mr. Garner. The death was tragic, but totally unavoidable. The infraction Garner committed was selling loose cigarettes. It was a minor violation. Officers attempted to arrest Mr. Garner, but he refused to comply. He felt he was being harassed by the police and told them not to touch him. He was not violently resisting arrest, but did not comply. Mr. Garner was a large man, approximately six foot three, and weighed close to 400 pounds. Ultimately, he was taken to the ground and arrested and later died. There were contributing factors, but if Mr. Garner had complied and allowed the officers to take him into custody, he would still be here. There were different avenues to take if someone feels they are being unjustly treated. Resistance is not the avenue to take, be it verbal or physical. Everyone gets their day in court. We should be teaching our children how to respect and interact with the police. The mayor of New York has been quoted as saying that he had to teach his son, who was biracial, how to interact with the police for his own safety. His son was also said that he's in fear of the police after having talks with his parents about the threat to black youth. During the Democratic debates, Mayor de Blasio mentioned conversations he had with his son about the dangers police pose to young black citizens in America. Conversations like this instill fear in children. I can't tell you how many times I've heard parents say to their children, see that policeman? If you don't behave, he's going to take you away. That's the worst thing you can say to a child. We don't want children to be afraid of us. We want them to come to us if they're lost or if there's a problem. It's not our job to make your children listen to you. It's yours. It's called parenting, and it starts at home. When my children were younger, I, as a police officer, too, taught them how to interact with the police, not just for their safety, but for the officer's safety as well. When they were told, old enough to drive, I told them that if they were stopped, especially at night, to turn on the interior light, roll down the windows, turn off the engine, and keep your hands on the steering wheel. Then it was yes, sir, no, sir. It's common sense. We need to teach everybody how to interact with the police. It's not a black and white issue. It's a people issue. Um, I think I want to say this is our this is our second show, and we're trying to get things down. My first show when I got home, I had a couple of critiques from my wife and a few people that I know said, "Hey, stop swiveling." The first episode, if you watched it, I was constantly going back and forth. Not sure if it was nerves or not, but I, but I was doing it. Today, uh, the, the nerves are there a little bit. This, this is brand new. This is a first time experience for me, 
and uh, hopefully, well, I, I know we, we will get better each time. The more we do it, the better we get. After the repetition, we'll get there. Hope you enjoyed tonight's show, and uh, it's going to be a great experience for everybody involved. Tonight, I have a special guest, John McRae. He's a retired New York City detective who I not only had the pleasure of working with for years ago, you know, years ago in Coney Island, but I introduced him to my sister, who he ultimately ended up marrying, and to this day, he still blames me. That's right. I'm never going to let you away with it either. <laughs> the best thing that ever happened to you <laughs> was, no, was me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was the best thing. Yeah. Uh, John, you started your police career back in? 1980. 1980. It was a different world back then. Much different. Same thing with me. I started a few years later, 1984. There was a lot more respect. On the street, I think it's what happened with the old-timers, the old-timers that had come on the job. Uh, when I was a kid, there was respect. You didn't talk back to a police officer. A lot of times if you saw him coming, a police officer coming, you were just hanging out on the corner out of respect or out of fear, you went on your way. Well, it wasn't even fear. It, it, was, it was just the right thing to do. You know, all of a sudden you look at, you and say, look at yourself and say, am I doing the right thing with what I'm doing here? Should I be here or shouldn't I be here? Makes you think. Huh. And it did. And, and back then, too, if you remember, you heard the stories if the police ever brought somebody home. <laughs> <laughs> they were more worried about the beating they were going to get from their parents than actually getting stopped by the police. Exactly. You know, it's even not a beating, it's just grounding or whatever it was, just the disappointment of, you know, a cop bringing you home to your parents. I mean, the, the, the biggest thing, like, to me would be, you know, like if a cop would bring me home, it'd be my father would just give me a look. I mean, forget about it. That would crush me. And, and that would, I would imagine that would be some look. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and the thing is, today, it's, it's funny, when the police get involved, a lot of times, more often than not, when they bring somebody home, it's the cops that catch, catch grief. You know, what, what did you do to my kid? Well, exactly. You know, it's like, you know, you know, they look at you like, you're bringing him home. Why are you doing this? Why are you picking on my kid? The, what's the other option? You know, you get a phone call to come down to the precinct because now the kid's getting arrested, and he's going to have to, you know, He's, here's, your, here's your desk appearance to get to bring him to juvenile court. I mean, would you rather have me bring him home and say he's already throwing eggs on someone's house, or would you rather get him locked up for criminal mischief? Yeah. You know, they, they don't think of it that way, that you're trying to do them a favor, that you could straighten this kid out now. You know, if it's, you know it's just for an example, Halloween, they throw eggs. Okay, fine. You know, it's not the worst thing in the world. They shouldn't do it, but, you know, you, w w what's the next step? W what's the next thing? You know, from eggs to uh, a rock through someone's window. Right, it progresses. It does. It, it just keeps on going. You know, and, and the funny thing is years ago we had a lot of discretion on how we handled a lot of calls. You know, uh, traffic tickets, it was always a, a summons was issued at your discretion. You had the discretion. Um, on the street, you dealt with things, and a lot of times you were able to deal with it right then and there. Now, with the body cameras, you know, body cameras now have taken a lot away, uh, a lot of the discretion away. Everything is recorded. They, they're good and they're bad in, in the sense of what you can and can't do. It's good. It keeps everybody honest. Okay. It also uh, cuts down on the false complaints that are made by uh, people against the police. Well, yeah. You know, it. it the cameras, they would do that. But, you know, you, you're wearing a hard, you wear enough stuff. 
Why do you have to wear a camera? You're a police officer. You're sworn to protect and serve. You know, you know, a lot of these people, they, they, they don't want a, a camera there for you to, you know, to, for you to you know, record everything you do. I mean, for crying out loud, that's why you're a policeman. You're supposed to be, you know, that little bit above that, you know, above a little bit of reproach. You can be trusted to do things. That's why you're out there with a gun and you're wearing a vest and you're driving around and you're trying to help people. You know, that, that, that's the whole thing. You're putting your life on the line every day. You don't know what's the next thing that's going to happen is jump up in your face. You have no idea. You know it just as well as I do. No, absolutely. You, you don't know from one moment to the next. No, you don't know. You know, one moment, uh, you know, we discussed this last week uh, with my guest Gary. One minute you could be sitting in the car having a cup of coffee, just having lunch, and the next thing, uh, you know, it hits the fan. It hits the fan. You have to be prepared to react and take action at that moment at any given moment well you, you just never know when the thing whenever anything is going to blow up you don't know where it's going to blow up is it going to blow up in your face is it going to be you know, a friend's face on the other side of the precinct or a neighboring precinct or something else you have no idea but you know it's you, know, you can have a lot of boredom and then all of a sudden it's giant chaos all right, you go from zero to 60. <laughs> you go zero to 100. You never know what the heck is going to go on. John, now you saw the video with the bucket throwing the water mm, on the police Yes, officers. I did. And wh what were your feelings when you, when you saw it? I was shocked. I mean, I could see that, you know, that type of... I could see that... I could understand and see that, you know... I should say I expect that sometimes it's going to happen that people are going to throw water at you or this and I had a lot worse than water thrown at me. But the thing is, to see these guys walking away, you know, very sheepishly walking away from it and people coming up behind them and dumping stuff on them, or throwing a bucket and hitting a guy in the head with it. Yeah, it, it hurt. I mean, that's it ridiculous. Hurt. Yeah, it hurt. You know, it's, it's funny, I remember years ago, I was... Standing on the corner, I was walking the footpost in Coney Island. I was on Mermaid Avenue in West 24th Street, and it was a sunny day. It was beautiful out. And as I'm standing there, all of a sudden, a stone about the size of a hardball just misses me. And I'm looking around, like, what the hell was that? For and the buildings. For the buildings. <laughs> and then a few minutes later, it started raining stones. And I ducked inside to the store. Was, there was a corner store. And I ducked inside and eventually was able to wake, make my way out, and I went to the building. And when I got to the roof of that building, naturally there was nobody there, but the whole roof was covered in these stones. The stones were there for drainage. Yeah. And I remember I went back to the command, and I told, uh, <coughs> I told my supervisor what had happened. Well, there was a meeting. They met with the manager of the building, and within a day or two, every stone on that roof was removed. Well, that's good, but, you know, the other things that we used to get over there, the batteries they were throwing out, baby's diapers were thrown out. I mean, everything but the kitchen sink, well, even then some of that came out too. <laughs> but, uh, you know, yeah, you see from some of these places, I mean, people, you know, they don't have any respect for you. You, you can understand that. Not everyone's going to be doing that. No. But, you know, there are some good people there and there are some bad people there. I would say the majority of the people out there s support us. A lot of the people support us and are, are pro-police. Um, well, I think they support us. You know, you know, 
with the jaundiced eye, a lot of people, you know, the supporters with the jaundiced eye, you know, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. But, you, you know, they shouldn't be talking like that or putting restrictions on you, you know, until you walk a mile in my shoes. Exactly, and that's a great point that you bring up because that's what I'm hoping that this podcast will do based upon the stories um, that I tell and, and people tell, the things that they've gone through. Almost put somebody in our shoes, okay, in a, sa- in a safe way, okay, not to experience exactly everything that we've done or, or been through, but to see the things that we do. We're human. We're human. Do we make mistakes? Absolutely. Okay. Sure, we all do. But, but I know uh, the majority of us go out there every day um, not knowing if we're going to come back, trying to do the best job possible for everybody, for ourselves, for our families, and, and for the public. Well, that, that's it. You know, you, you never know when, you know, your, your job is to get home in one piece without any extra holes in you. Absolutely. All right. And it doesn't always work out that way. You know, you, you know, you end up coming home with stitches from this and that. You, you don't want to call home and say, oh, I'm, in, I'm at the hospital getting stitches or whatever like that. I mean, that happened with, with Marsha. She called up looking for me and said, oh, he's in the hospital getting the stitches in his leg. And, of course, she didn't take that very well. Right. I'm glad we didn't have, you know, really cell phones then. But, you know, I'm glad I didn't have them because we've been ringing off the wall. You know, but people don't realize what we have to do. You know what they don't realize either. And sometimes we don't realize, aside from what we do or the things we have to do, is what our families go through. I know when I'm at work at any given day, I know what I'm doing. I know I'm okay. I don't worry about myself. I don't think about the worries that possibly my wife has or my children have had or my parents have had while I was at work. And especially there were times where it would come over the news immediately, cop shot, you know, until they would announce where it was. You know, sometimes it would happen. I'd, I'd get on the phone and say, hey, I'm okay. It's not me. I'm okay. Yeah, well, that's true. That's very true, especially when you say that, you know, there's a cop shot and, you know, for wherever you were working, like where I was working, I used to work in, like, well, I was a narcotic, so my my aunt would be worried about me and everything up before, you know, I met Marsha and everything. But when I ended up in, like, I went from the robbery squad there, I ended up up in Brooklyn North. Right, which was which is a busy place. It's a very busy place, but we covered all of Brooklyn. Right. So when she, anytime she heard about a plainclothes cop, she was thinking of you. She was thinking of me. She was thinking of all you know the friends that we have. Sure. She knew all of these people too. You know, and the last thing you want to do is hear about oh there was a cop shot in the six O in Coney Island. Right. You know, or, the, you know something like that. Funny that you mentioned that. I remember. <coughs> I'm not sure of the year right now. It was in the late 80s. I um, was getting ready for work. I had just taken a shower, and I got into my car. And as I'm driving, the news report comes on, and it says, uh, Officer Joe Campbell. And right away, my ears perked up, because I worked with the Joe Campbell in uh, Coney Island. We covered Coney Island, parts of Bensonhurst and Brighton Beach. Is in critical but stable condition after a shootout. And as I'm listening to this, the thoughts that are going through my mind are, I hope it's not the Joe Campbell that I know. Yeah. And, and then it said after a shootout in Brighton Beach. So I was like, wow. When I got into work that day, uh, I was told, hey, listen, get into your uniform and go to Kings County Hospital. 
you're going to be assigned to Joe. And I remember when I got there, he's, he was out of surgery, and his family was on the way in. And I remember him laying there, and he had still had blood on his feet from everything that was going on. I remember telling the nurse, hey, listen, his mom's on the way here. You need to clean him up. And when he got home, I was assigned to him for two, two weeks. And I remember what happened was him and his partner had responded to, I believe it was supposed to be, originally it was a burglary, but it turned out to be a home invasion. And they did everything right. Um, you know, technically they did everything right. They parked a few houses away and they walked up to the location. When it was four steps up to the house and the door, I think it was like a nine foot door, it had an eyebrow window on the top, so they couldn't see see in and uh, as they were going through the door the door was opening and the bad guy was coming out and his back was towards them and they spun him around and as they spun him around he was on the I believe it was a 357 Magnum and he fired around and it hit Joe in the uh, gun belt it, it went through hit him in the stomach and as he was going down he and Rocco his partner returned fire and, and they killed the guy so you know, it was a week, two weeks later, I'm at Joe's house and we're talking and New York City Police Department has a three-quarter disability pension. And I always jokingly said, hey, listen, if a bullet even came this close to me, I'm, I'm done, I'm quitting. And Joe and I were talking and he said to me, he said, yeah, you know, Bobby, uh, I don't know what I want to do. I said, what are you talking about? He says, I don't know if I should put in for three-quarters um, or stay on. I, I want to be a sergeant. And I remember saying to him, you're out of your mind. Take them. You, you were shot. You, you're lucky to be alive. Uh, take the money and run. And I remember him telling me that the doctor said it was a good thing he got shot in, in the belt. It went through the gun belt because the gunman, the gunman being so close to him, if he was shot in the vest, it would have killed him. Just some, the blunt trauma would have killed oh, yeah. him. Would have killed him. So. Joe stayed on the job and he rose up the ranks. I. I I think he's retired now, but I, I'm not sure if he was a deputy inspector or a full inspector. But here's a guy who gets shot, could have got on, out on a disability, loved the job, got promoted to sergeant, which is what he wanted, and then continued to rise through the ranks. And uh, I remember Joe Campbell was always a gentleman, always a gentleman. So you, yeah, you, you but never know. He, he was almost another statistic. You Absolutely. Know, you know, an inch, you know, a little bit higher or lower, and he could have bled out in a few minutes. You know, before he could even get him to a hospital. Hey John, uh, people always ask, why'd you become a cop? Okay, and the answers all vary. So I'm going to ask you, why'd you become a cop? <laughs> I don't know. It's, uh, you know, my father always wanted to, wanted, wanted one of us to, to be in the police. Department. He always wanted to be a cop. So you're but, like an Irish doctor. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every Irish parent's dream. Right? <laughs> yeah. But uh, I ended up, I ended up going to the police department. At first, I worked for the transit authority, and uh, which he loved that idea. And then it became, you know, then, uh, you know, of course, I, I had to take every civil service test that came down the pike. You know, he'd be telling me, "Well, don't be uh, busy Saturday because you have to do something." <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. You know, that's how it was. You know. At least in my house it was, you did what you were told. And, it, you know, you're going to take this test. He had me taking more tests than I knew, knew what about. Every test that, you could, that came out, he made me take it. 
Yeah, I think in my house it was a little different. I don't think my parents too, were too keen on the idea, idea of me being, being a cop. You know, no? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think they wanted something uh, something more for me, something better, something safer. Yeah. Well, you never know. What, 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 what is safe today? That's, that's true. Hey, look, a teacher's a very dangerous job today. That's, that's very, very true. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> teachers, they don't get any respect in a classroom. No, not at all. They should get hazardous pay. Well, they, they should. I mean, uh, sometimes some of these classes that they have some of these kids in, I mean, they don't need to have a teacher. They need a teacher, and the teacher needs to have a partner there with them. You know, for when they turn it back to write on the, the blackboard, they got you got to have someone to look at the kids. Yeah, they need bodyguards. It's very true. It's very true. Let me ask you, what, what's the uh, biggest thing that you enjoyed about being in law enforcement? The biggest thing I enjoyed about law enforcement, oh, it, I, I, every day that I went to work, it, it wasn't a day going to work. It was I, I went to play with my friends. It, it was like, you know, every day you're going out, you're playing cowboys and Indians, you know. <laughs> Cowboys and cops and robbers. Cops, robbers, cowboys and Indians, you know, whatever it was. But I just enjoyed every minute of it. I wish I could do it over again. <laughs> uh, maybe not today. <laughs> no, not today. Maybe not today. Yeah, not if you, today, if you but... Turn back the clock and uh, make things the way they were 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Yeah, well, you can't turn the clock back. But uh, they need to put... They, they got to turn back some of these uh, programs that they have going on with no, you know, stop and frisk or anything like that. I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah. You need this. That stop and frisk program was a program back in New York. And um, it was a tool. It was, it was a tool that worked very well. What's the most thing, you know, what did you dislike the most about the job? What I disliked the most... <laughs> Oh, uh, I just like, you know, I just like, you know, not being at home on holidays. You know, I hated doing things like that, but, you know, it, it went with the turf, you know. It, it, that's how it went. It went with the job. You know, a lot of times you couldn't be home when you wanted to be home. You know, you were doing something else, you know. Like, uh, there was a Father's Day I couldn't be home because we got into when I was in the in Brooklyn robbery, up in Brooklyn North over there on Washington Avenue, we had that thing with the kidnapping. And we went for I think it was four days straight. And when it came time for that, uh, you know, you know, for uh, Father's Day on that Sunday, you know, we <laughs> we were still working. You know, the kids got to see me on TV, but... <laughs> We've got uh, TV monitors playing, and Fox News is showing the episodes of the cops being doused with the buckets of water. And it's definitely national news, and uh, again, every time I watch it, I, I can feel my blood pressure <laughs> just rise. And I think a lot of the reason being is that this goes on is some of the policies in New York have been changed. They've, they've been... Uh, reduced or they've lightened up on the policies where back when we police officers and walked the beat or rode in the radio cars, they were quality of life violations that they wanted to enforce. 
yes, thinking that they were good. you start with the small things and it helps prevent larger problems from happening. Yes, it does. And now it, the pendulum, you know, they say this pendulum swings both ways and now it's swinging back. Where it's out of control. It's just totally out of control what people are doing. Well, that's it. They're not showing any respect to the public. It's like the dousing of water and stuff. You wouldn't think of ever doing something like that to any policeman or anybody. Dang, I, I wouldn't talk back to a cop. <laughs> yeah, but you wouldn't. You know, when we were growing up, you just wouldn't. You were taught not to speak that way, you know, in school. Or oh, to, to anybody. To anybody, right. not at all. Absolutely. The There's big, no reason to do that. No, and the big thing now is everybody's uh, talking about, oh, it's free speech. It's my First Amendment right. It's, it's, you know, they go on and they go on. It's my first... Amendment right, but there has to be a line drawn. I remember years ago, I was working at the airport, and we were in a high alert. So pretty much what happened was somebody came to pick up a passenger. They they couldn't stay there unless the, their people were out. Once they people were out and they were, unlo- you know, loading up the vehicle, you could take as much time as you wanted. And I was working one day, and a car pulls up, and I said to the guy, I said, "Excuse me, sir, you you can't stay here. We're in a high alert. You're going to have to circle. When your party's out, you can take as much time as you need." And he's giving me a hard time, I mean, just arguing back and forth with me. And he, he was a little bit older than me at the time. And we're going back and forth. And I said, listen, once they're out, you can spend as much time as you need, but you're going to have to circle now. We're in high alert. And all of a sudden, he pulls out a police badge. Okay, so it works. This works both ways. He pulls out a police badge and says to me, hey, does this help? And I looked at him. I said, no, ab- absolutely not. <laughs> you know, and it was because of the way... He came off to me in the, in the beginning. You know, we try to extend courtesy whenever we can. And, and I wouldn't only do that police officers. There were so many people that would pull up to me at the airport and say, hey, he's on his way out. Uh, can you just give me two minutes? And a lot of times I'd say, all right, I'll give you two minutes under one condition. You have to talk to me. And I would talk to him. I would spend a couple of times, and, and we would talk. And lo and behold, the person would come out, and everybody was happy. It made my job easier because I didn't have to argue with anybody. So getting back to this other guy, he circles, circles around, and finally he comes out, and his party comes out, and he's having some conversation with his son. And his son comes walking up to me and looks at me, and this is the son of a police officer, and tells me, hey, go F yourself. And I I looked at him, I said, what? And he had no problem repeating it. He said, hey, go F yourself. It's my First Amendment right. And I remember getting so mad and so angry that this is the, the son of a police officer and this, this guy is standing right there. So, you know, it was just, I, I was amazed. I, I, I really couldn't believe it. it was well, if he, you know, if he was a cop, he should have, he should know better. Absolutely. He should have known better and he shouldn't have let his son do something like that. No, if my son had done something like that, uh, there would be consequences. But yes, there would be serious, <laughs> There'd be serious consequences. Yes, there would be. You know. Uh, recently, too, there's another video that they're showing from New York, the New, New York subway system. Aside from the buckets being thrown at these police officers, there were uh, two police officers on a subway train. And on the train, a male gets right in their face. And he's being belligerent, and he's re- really in their personal space. He's getting really close, and he's saying to this police officer, hey, suck my dick. And, I, and the police officers are just standing there, uh, they're engaging him in conversation, and, and yes, it's free speech, and this gentleman keeps going on and keeps repeating this to the police officers. And uh, Also, 
stating the fact that this is his First Amendment right and people are filming it and people are laughing, but there's got to be a line. Where, where do you draw the line with free speech? Well, the thing is, like, all right, he's in the middle of a subway car and he's saying it's his, his First Amendment right. He can say that. Yeah, you can say that, but it's not someone else's duty to have to listen to There's other people on the train car. All right, a New York City train is never very empty. No, there's other sure. people there, and they don't have they they don't have to listen to it. When does his free speech become, uh, you know, a, a, an excuse to 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 someone else's right not to hear that type of language, so they can read a book or listen to a radio or have their little kid look out a window and watch things going on. When when does his rights violate everyone else's rights? You know that that's not true. That's what he was doing. That was disorderly conduct. Yeah, absolutely. That was this. That wasn't free speech. That was disorderly conduct. And that's that's the reason to arrest. Okay, that's how I see it anyway. You know, maybe you're they're told not to bring things into the station house like that anymore, but. I don't know, when I was a policeman, this was not tolerated. And nor should it be. The little things, like you say, like this guy, he's doing this on the train. What is his next step? What is the next one? They threw buckets of water on the cops. Well, what's the next step? Rocks, bricks. And then after that, what is it going to be? It just keeps, it just keeps on escalating. People are in the streets. They don't want to hear this guy cursing and this and that. They're on a train. They're going to work or they're going home. And doing, who wants to hear this guy screaming? Nobody. The cops don't want to hear. But who? His, his rights now infringe on everyone else's rights. That's this con. He's got to go. That's how I see it anyway. He should. And that's how, you know, as I'm talking to the uh, Fox TV is on the background. And oh yeah, okay. You know they're showing the kids uh, throwing buckets of water on themselves, but also the police car is is in the background and also getting doused, and, and that's the police car. Uh, hey, hey, they're washing the car for free. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's just just amazing the things that go on. Yeah, well, if if the parents can't teach their kids how to respect the policeman or fireman, you know. Or an ambulance driver, something like that. You know, how can they expect the police to come back and treat them seriously, or a fireman to treat them seriously, or an EMS worker? Well, well, the thing is, too, there's also a lack of respect at home. If you've gone to some of these houses and you see some of the kids speak to their parents with a total lack of respect, a well, total lack of respect, and it's, it starts home. I know it starts at home. But, you know, the, all of these people that think this is cute, oh, it's only water. Oh, the cops, they, they, they showed great restraint, someone said today. Yes, I've heard that, great they, restraint. They okay. showed great restraint. Above I'm and sure beyond. They, yes, but I disagree. Those two cops should have turned around and started making arrests. Well, can you imagine if the shoe was on the other foot, if the police officers had buckets of water on them and just started drenching people? Can, can you imagine the uproar? Those cops <laughs> would be in jail today. Yeah. They, they, their careers would be finished. Done. Finished. Right. Over. Mm -hmm. But yet it's, ex it's acceptable for them to be victimized. 
Well, I don't, I don't see how that because I, I don't see how they can walk into a station house and that be accepted. The, when you and I were cops and stuff, that type that was not acceptable. You know, if that was going on, you made an arrest. Absolutely. And if, if, it you start, if it started getting too hairy, yeah, that's what the radio is for. You call for backup, more people come. Absolutely. I remember, uh, God, in, in the height of the police department, I think we were 48,000 strong in New York City Police Department. It was actually ranked the ninth largest army in the world at one point. And I remember one of the instructors saying, uh, they were talking about gang violence and, if, you know, confrontations with gangs. I remember him saying, hey, just remember, we have the biggest gang out there. <laughs> I said that to a guy once. He, he was getting, I locked him up for something. I forget what it was. But the one thing I do remember, he said, he's going to have his gang get me. I said, my gang's bigger than your gang. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Tell him, bring it on. <laughs> Anytime you want to. <laughs> Well, you know, it's it's things like that. You know, it, it, you know, they they need to do go back to the policies like the, like they have under Giuliani. All right, I agree with everything they did, but the policies that they have for policing, they were really great. Okay, and you, you were trusted to do your job. All right, you're not second guessing. Well, if I do this, am I going to lose my job? Am I going to be? Uh, um, am I going to get locked up for something? Or this? You have. You can't be afraid to do your job. If that's what you're going to be, then that's not your job for you. Yeah. And maybe the job isn't for people. If the, if this is what the if politicians want to run the police department instead of letting the police run the police department, okay, let the police do their job. Don't try to do something that you don't know what you're doing. Don't make policies that are ridiculous and don't take away the tools that we have or the things that really do work. Absolutely. If it's, if it's not broken, don't fix it. Well, quality of life and stuff, you know, it, beer drinking summons is out in the street, loud noises, you know, all hours. And I, these things are being tolerated. What about the poor guy who has to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and he's got to go to work? He's going to be working for 10 hours. Okay. Well, it's the same thing now with the you know, legalization of the uh, marijuana, uh, me medical marijuana. And uh, a lot of times the police are told, hey, listen, if they're smoking marijuana, just, just let it go. Just, just where years ago, you know, it was an arrestable offense back, back then. But times change. Everything evolves. So does policing. Well, yeah. Well, what's the next step? Well, he's shooting up heroin. Don't, don't worry about it. Just keep on going. Yeah. He's only doing it to himself. Well, they're not. Yep. It's one step more, one step more, one step more. You know, it's you know, some people smoke marijuana, but a lot of people who got really hooked on drugs, that was their that was their gateway drug. You know, you, you see say you you've seen these poor souls out there, you know, they they they're they they're walking ghosts. Right. These junkies. Oh, and we had the crack ep epidemic. Back oh, years ago, back back in the eighties, and uh, I was assigned to the special anti-crack unit. Okay. I never even heard of that unit. Yeah, yeah. it's gone now. I mean, that was out of Humboldt Street. So I remember one of my partners used to call crack the uh, the body snatcher drug. <laughs> you know, people people uh, would do crack, and within weeks they were a third of the size that they were. Oh yeah, oh yeah. You see people. I mean, they wasted away.
and it, it, it just got to the point you did not recognize the same person. A year later, if you saw the same person, you could not tell it was the same person. Absolutely. I mean, it ate them alive. Yeah, it, it certainly did. Um, you know, John, in our profession, things aren't always what they appear to be, and it's very easy to uh, underestimate somebody based upon their physical appearance and their demeanor. Um, I know years ago, uh, you had one such encounter years ago when you were back on patrol. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yes. Yeah, you told me that story a long time ago. W would you mind sharing it with us? Yeah, no problem. Uh, <laughs> it was in the early 80s, like 81 or 82. And, you know, they, there weren't many cops around at that point. So it was uh, on a late tour, and I think there, was, there were two cars working, you know, 70 North and 70 South. That's all it was, you know. And we got, went to a, a dispute. That's all they could say, you know, that 911 didn't know the whole thing. It was just a dispute. So we get there, and there's uh, a man standing on the front stoop. You know, it's like a three-story walk-up. And he's on the front of the, front of the place. And you get out of the car, we go to him, and you can see that he's been, you know, he's been punched in the face several times. And he didn't speak English very well at all. Like, what happened? What happened? And he kept on pointing. He goes, inside, my wife, my wife, my wife. All right. So we go in. We go up. It's like on the second floor. And we go into the apartment, and there's a whole bunch of people in the living room. And an old lady crying and screaming. And I guess she was the mother or whatever. And all these people, when you get closer and you look, they were all bloodied. Everyone has <laughs> who has a fat lip, who has a bloody nose, who's holding her eye. It, it, you know, and the house is all you know, kind of disarrayed also. I said, well, who did this? What's going on? And he starts pointing to another room. He goes, my wife, my wife, my wife. So I, we tried to open a door, but there was stuff against the door. It turned out to be, you know, we pushed the door open, and it the bed was against the door. So we get in there and we're looking around trying to find the wife. And we get around and the uh, there was a dresser that was pulled away from the, the, the wall a little bit. And I look behind there and there's this this little Spanish woman, a young but beautiful woman. And she's laying on the floor. And she she hears me. I'm saying, you know, are you okay? Are you okay? And she starts getting up. She's like, yeah, 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 I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay. And how, and I, how, how big was this woman? <laughs> she was like about five feet tall, maybe like 100 pounds, 110 pounds soaking wet. And, and, and you, you, at the time, of six feet tall? 200? Yeah, I was six feet tall and 220 pounds. Right. And, you know, my partner, Jimmy, he was about the same size, a little bit skinnier than me, but, you know, we're looking around like, what happened? You know, I'm saying, what happened? And she's like shaking her head a little bit. And she got up from behind there and she stood in front of the dresser. And then she just picked the dresser up and hit me with it. <laughs> I, I I didn't believe my eyes. This little girl was picking up this whole dresser. 
and she hit me right in the face. I mean, <laughs> I, I I just didn't believe this happened. I, I thought she knocked all my teeth out. You know, I was trying to feel my teeth, and I pushed the dresser off me, and she's all she's beating the crap out of my partner. She come off and she kicked him in the stomach. It like she was some type of ninja or something. She started, she was pounding on him like forgot about it. So I'm thinking, holy crap. I jump on top of her. I try to pull her off him. She's elbowing me, kicking him and me at the same time, headbutting me backwards. We rolled around in that, that bedroom, the three of us, fighting, trying to get handcuffs on her for a good 20 minutes. And it was one heck of a fight. At one point, I got a, I was holding on to it, and she bit me in the neck. And she did not want to let go. So, you know, it, it, was, it was one heck of a fight. You know, now, of course, the husband did not help, nor did anyone else in the outside room. They knew better. Right. <laughs> we didn't <laughs> they know. Already, they already had a taste. Yeah, but we didn't know this tiny little lady. You know, she's going to turn into a monster. So, you know, we finally got the handcuffs on her, and it was one hell of a time trying to do it. I never saw someone this strong. Hey, uh, you just want to uh, say hi to Mike Vaughn? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mikey uh, called in and his comment was two great guys. <laughs> hi, Mikey. <laughs> Thank, thanks, Mike. Uh, back in the old 6 0 days, Coney Island. Yeah. It was a great time. <laughs> and, uh, and, good uh, man. Hello, Marsha. Marsha says hello. She said, uh, Hey, Marsha. The Blasio is ruining it for the uh, entire country. Not, on, not only New York City, but the entire country. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> it is true. The, uh, who was it? I think it was the uh, chief of police from Miami. He was on the news today, and he was telling de Blasio, you, should, you better get something done because this is going to spread and it's going to get worse. And he's right. Absolutely. It will. It will. But, you know, like without that, that woman, uh, you know, it's, she bit me in the neck. I had a brand new shirt I put on that day, and it was, I had blood all over it. I looked like a mess. <laughs> it's always when you put a new shirt on. Or new pants. Uh, brand new shirt full of blood. And that was pretty much the end of it. Brand new shirt. Yes, and, you know, after that, you know, it's, uh, while we were fighting in there, the uh, dispatcher was trying to get, get in touch with us for a disposition. We never answered, we couldn't answer the radio. So she called an 85 on us. And for those who don't know what an 85 is, 85 is uh, for additional backup to send more units out there. There were three different codes in the New York City Police Department, and 85 would be for a backup. 85 forthwith would be to step it up, and at 1013 would be send the cavalry. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, but, you, know, you know, one car showed up because there was only other, one other car in the precinct. But, uh, you know, that, that they came at that point when we were leaving the place, you know, with this woman in handcuffs, and she was fighting every inch of the way there, too, you know. And the thing was, you know, what what can you do with this poor soul? You know, cause she's she was crazy. Did you ever find out if she was on any narcotics, or was it just a? Uh... I don't know if she was on narcotics or what. But uh, our thing was, you know, to get her over to Kings County, 
the hospital. And uh, she was EDP'd. They took her there. They gave her a shot, and that calmed her down right away. The worst part was the husband didn't want to go with her. Right. You know, and I, <laughs> I said, I'm not asking. I'm telling you, get in the car. You're going with her. <laughs> he did not want to go. You're going. He had enough. You know, I had enough. That's it. He's going. No, it's his wife, not mine. So he's going to take care of his wife in the hospital. I'm not sitting there all night. He's going to mind her. I had to come back uh, to the precinct. Gotcha. But uh, it wasn't a pleasant thing with all the, you know, I had to stop by the emergency room to get the doctor to make sure I didn't have some kind of disease in there. Right. You clean it up and put a patch on my on my neck. You turn into a vampire. This time, <laughs> this time I'd like to give a shout out to uh, our producers, Danny and Tony, because they told me I should say hello. So, <laughs> guys, hello. Hey, everybody. <laughs> okay. And uh, believe it or not, we have our first caller. So I'm going to pick up this call with Fred. Hey, Fred, you're on the air. Can you hear me? I can hear you now. I'm still learning how to work these controls. It's not as easy as I make okay. it look. <laughs> All right. Doing a great great job, guys. Great, great podcast, yeah. Um, I hate to take you guys off track. Uh, no, no, please, please, please do. Please do take us off track. The guys getting, the cops getting doused. I'm retired NYPD. Uh, the cops getting doused up in New York City. Um, it, 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 it's horrible to watch. It's sad. But um, I, on one of the other Facebook websites, they did show that there was a finest message released. And I, I think this really addresses the root of what the, uh, the, the bigger problem was. I don't want to point fingers, uh, but uh, I, you, know, you don't want to... You don't want to be a Monday morning quarterback, but I don't think some of the guys, some of the people, sorry, I don't think some of the people doing that job today can think the way we had to think when we did it. I was hired in 1990, and we, we are a different generation. And I worked the majority in the projects. And, you know, if you couldn't think on your feet, doing that job no matter where you were, if you couldn't think on your feet, if you didn't know what you were doing, you, you know, you were, you were food for the wolves. And I don't think some of these guys understand. I mean, just initially, I was like, how do, how do guy getting hit in the head with a bucket while he's affecting the rest, how does somebody not get locked up for obstruction of governmental administration at the lowest level? Hey, how about assault? Assault three. Uh, yeah, assault. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, just for starters, I mean, if you want, you want to grasp at straws, you got something there. You got OGA. It's always a great thing in DISCON. But they released the finest message. I won't read the whole thing, but they did outline four charges that they said, you know, any officers encountering this should uh, be able to affect an arrest for, and one of them is obstructive governmental administration, second degree. Uh, second was criminal tampering in the third degree. Third was harassment in the second degree. And fourth was disorderly conduct. And they follow this up with members of the service who are subjected to this conduct. They should be able to articulate how these acts of the defendant uh, Got to excuse me here. I'm trying to read this off my phone, and the little clip is in the way. But basically, they got to articulate. They've got to show how somebody might have been in fear for their lives because you don't know what's in that bucket. Sure, bucket of water. Yeah, it could have been a bucket of bleach. Could have been a bucket of muriatic acid. Absolutely, lie. That was a big thing back in the day. Lie. Oh, lie. God forbid. Oh. But yeah, uh, it. I don't. I don't know that some of the people today 
can 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 act on their own and think like that. I mean, we've all heard some stories about, you know, bosses being called to the scene and having to call another boss. Well, you know, you know, and you got to wonder what are they teaching them in, in the police academy today? You know, I came on in '84. I know John came on in '81, and from '81 to '84, things had changed in the police academy. Um, oh, definitely. When yeah. I came on in '90, people looking at my class like, what, "What's going to happen to us?" Yeah, I, I mean, but, at one point, but it's—I think it's—it's it's the administration up there, it's the culture. That, I mean, you know, you try to affect an arrest on any of those situations, it would—it would have probably erupted into more of a problem, almost a full-blown riot, because the mob mentality had taken hold. And that's why a lot of them were doing that. They, 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 were, they were acting under the anonymity of the mob. They could just run up, throw a bucket, and run away. But you try and grab one, and then, you know, what's the risk of, you know, what are you going to have, 50 more coming out, emptying out? And calling them? You know, and a lot of that stems from them, uh, people being allowed to get away with more and more and more. You keep pushing the limit, and you push it, and you push it, and you push it, and you get away with it, and this is what happens. Right. This is what they happens. Don't be, they don't want to face the consequences. Yeah. You know, it's funny, back at, you know, when I was in the academy, we had to do, uh, I don't know, if we, I don't even remember, it's that long ago, it was a, a run, I think it was a three-mile run at one point or something like that, and then I, somebody was telling me it got to the point, well, now you, a few years later, you didn't have to run if you didn't want to. You had the option of running or not running. <laughs> so. when, I, when, I graduated, when I graduated in 90, it was, I think it was down to a two-mile run or a one-and-a-half-mile run, and you could do it at a fast walk pace. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so you know you yeah. start reducing the standards. Um, you know, it was different. But not too long ago, not too long ago, several months back, uh, it was on Facebook. It was all over the place. It was videos of these guys standing in the bodega, and one of these kids was just coming up, exercising his Second Amendment, uh, his First Amendment rights. Uh, I calling them, calling them names, telling them they're a joke. Look at you, you're hiding behind the donuts, and they're not doing anything. Yeah, I mean, it's so simple to just. To just say, you know what, he's causing public alarm. He's causing fear amongst other people. Yeah, but they're afraid to go into the station house with that. Right, John, John said, you know, you're being told not to bring that into a station house. I'm sorry, but are you going to let yourself be disrespected in the street like that? No. Are you going to let a lieutenant yell at you? Well, the, the thing is, you know, they're being the told it they, they see what's going on up there in new york they, they're not getting backed up they're looking at it like oh i'm just getting down to the water you know what else is gonna i could lose not only lose my job i could end up going to jail for if i do something to somebody because they say oh it was only water on you you know but you don't know if he's got a bucket of bricks god only knows right you, you know, know it's just it's some that the type of behavior it's not acceptable in a, a really good society it just is not acceptable behavior well it's not a really good society up there anymore right I was it's just, being led down a path but right. if police officers are willing to stand there and take that degradation and disrespect where does it go from there now you're telling them yeah you know what it's okay to turn around and say i don't want you to arrest me i'm not letting that happen today well, yeah. Well, you know, it's you know today, you know, it's you know buckets of water on a you know a hundred degree day. What's it going to be at Christmas time? Bricks. 
And we've had it in the past. Buckets of cement dropped on hey, the top. Hey, when, I was in the project, yeah. when I was in the projects, it was cans of cat food. It was bottles filled with sand, bowling balls, toilet, toilet bowls, whatever they could find. Yeah, quite literally. Quite literally. There was one small yeah. apartment house, you know, in uh, the old 7 And they, were, they had plastic bags, you know, sandwich bags. And they filled them up with crap. And they, you know, they call a, a phony job, and every time you went over there, they were throwing it on the, onto the, you know, at the police as soon as they would come out, you know, as they would be walking in the doors. You, you know, let me interrupt you. You talk about the seven O. I remember when I was uh, a rookie in NSU, one of our failed training officers, Louis Miller, God rest his soul. Yeah, God rest Louis. Uh, told us when we got to our foot post to go up on the roof, go on the roof, and whatever you find that could be, yeah, whatever you find that could be thrown down on you, get rid of. So me and my partner at the time, we went up to the roof, and on the roof there were these slabs of cement that were probably about, uh, I don't know, 12 to 14 inches in length and maybe four or five inches in width. And they were, there were three of them. And they, they were substantially heavy. If one of these came down and hit you in the head, it would definitely kill you. So we're looking on the roof, what are we gonna do with it? And on the roof, it was an old, 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 old building. It had dumbwaiters. There were still dumbwaiters up on the roof. Yeah, those are all over there. So I had a great idea. We throw the first slab of cement down, and you can hear banging as as it hits to the bottom. You see <laughs> bouncing off everything. And we throw the second one down, and we throw the third one down. We're like, all right, we're safe. We got rid of everything, and we're walking down the steps. And as we get to the first floor, this gentleman comes running out of his apartment, and he looks at us and he says, "Officers, quick! Somebody's trying to break into my apartment. They're coming through the wall." <laughs> and, and we look inside, and you can see the corner of the slab of cement had busted <laughs> through the wall where his dumbwaiter was. <laughs> and we looked at each we looked at each other, and we said, "All right, we'll go check out the basement, and uh, we'll be back." <laughs> and we got out of there as fast as we could. <laughs> so, <laughs> but know. they did used to go down the dumb the dumbwaiter shafts and break into the apartments. You know, they didn't have the dumbwaiter anymore, but they were all sealed up. But you they used to go in and break into places yeah, like that. Absolutely. Kick the wall in. <laughs> All right. I'll open up the line for the next caller. Well, Good show, guys. Fred, thank Keep you very up. much for and calling in. We appreciate ho it. Hopefully that finest message going out, telling them what they can do to prevent that, hopefully that'll start stopping some of that. Oh, what they it's, can, it's can do is... It's a shame to watch these guys get like that. Oh, it was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. It, it does detail, you know, any equipment or uniforms at any any department-owned property that gets ruined. They can be charged for that as well. So it's it's just a matter of giving, giving those guys the empowerment, giving absolutely. them the knowledge of what to do. Absolutely. Well, they got to start looking at the penal law and, you know, see what really goes on. You know, they, uh, they, they ex penal, remember the old expression, you know, trash is cash. That, that's how they looked at it. You know, crappy it's cow, they make the best. Book. There's something in there for everyone. Yes, that is. But I mean, to what they're doing now—that's totally crazy. Letting that get, you know, letting yeah. them get away with that in the first place. It did. I, it, I think it actually just took those guys by surprise. They didn't expect that, and they didn't know how to react to it. All right. Well, hey, Fred, thank you very much for calling, and uh, we want All to remind right, our callers. Have a great night. You too, buddy. Bye bye. Bye bye. We have another caller on the line. That was great. Uh, Fred was the first call for the night, and hopefully, uh, we'll get some more. All right, oh, hang on. Good. Let, let's pick this up. Hello, Anna. Hello. Uh, hey. Hello? Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I had a little trouble getting uh, getting you on the line, but we, <laughs> we, we figured it out. No worries. Um, so a question that I really wanted to ask um, was, after hearing all the hate that police officers have been receiving, what was the moment in your career that reminded you why you chose to be a cop? 
I never forgot why I chose to be a cop. Um, you know, I, I enjoy the interactions I ha have with people. And when we interact with people, we have no idea how it's going to affect them and their lives, whether in a, a positive or negative uh, way. And uh, it, it's been a very rewarding career for me. Um, never had a bad day, never hated my job, never said I didn't want to do this anymore. I'm getting to the point uh, now, I've just started my 36 years, it's to the point where, hey, uh, you know, enough might be enough, but uh, we'll, we'll see. I, I still enjoy it. I still enjoy dealing with people. All righty. Well, thank you. That's it. I just wanted to know because, I mean, there's so much negativity on the news and we know how much, you know, cops are there for us. And so I just wanted to know, like, besides putting all the negativity away, what was some positive oh, the, aspects? There, there are a lot of aspects. You know, it's funny. There are times I'll be, uh, whether I'm in a uh, sandwich shop or getting something or I'm, I'm walking someplace and somebody will see me in uniform and inevitably you get somebody to come up to you and say, hey, I just want to thank you for your service. And that's always a feel-good moment. And that reminds me of why I did the job. It's the people that say, hey, thank you. And I've had it from everybody. There are people that have thanked me that su surprised me, young, old. Um, it, it's just amazing. But it's, it's, it's a feel-good mo moment, and I always appreciate it. And there have been times, too, uh, you know, recently, I don't know if it started shortly after 911, but all of a sudden you're in a sandwich shop and you go to pay for your lunch, and I'm at the counter, and somebody said, hey, uh, Somebody already picked it up for you. And I'm like, what, what are you talking about? Yeah, there's somebody here who didn't want you to know, but they paid for your lunch, and they said thank you. So, you know, it, it's things like that. The people that do appreciate you, it makes you appreciate why you took the job. And that's... That's a... That, yeah. Go ahead. What were you going to say? No, I was, I was agreeing with you. I feel like definitely those, those aspects need to be seen because what you guys do is, is amazing work, and... Um, speaking to you, I want to thank you for keeping our keeping us as citizens safe. So, oh, oh thank you. Let me well, have you. How did you find out about uh, the podcast? I was uh, scrolling on Facebook and I came across it, so I wanted to tune in because, well, I wanted to get more insight on cops and their conversations. Well, fantastic! And uh, hey, if, if you enjoy this, please uh, spread the word. Absolutely, I definitely will. And thank you for calling in. Thank you. Have a good one. You too. That was nice. That was very nice. That yeah. was a feel-good moment. Yes, it was. Ma makes me appreciate why I took the job. This is very true. You know, someone's out there saying, hey, people, you know, cops are people too. Hey, we are. <laughs> hey, hey, guys, uh, you know, like, like I said earlier, this is a new venture for us, and uh, here we got a few wrinkles tying out, but we'll get through it. And uh, we want to thank you for listening. I want to thank uh, my guest, John McRae, my brother-in-law. Love you to death. <laughs> and I want to encourage anybody who has any topic whatsoever they would like to discuss or want to comment on the show, leave us a message on our Observations Facebook page. If you'd like to appear as a guest on our show, you can email us at metaphorcreativemedia. That's metaphorcreativemedia at yahoo.com. And as with every show, we want to honor our fallen brothers and sisters. This week, we honor Deputy... Sheriff Thomas Ronquillo, Kinney County Sheriff's Office, Texas, whose end of watch was on this date, Friday, July 25th, back in 1879. Deputy Ronquillo was stabbed to death while transporting a prisoner to the county jail in Brackettville. The man had just been arrested by the deputy for creating a disturbance. During the transport, the man pulled out a knife and stabbed the deputy in the heart. 
A citizen who had been deputized was able to arrest the subject, and he was also cut while he attempted to subdue him. The subject fled into Mexico, where he was later arrested and taken to jail in uh, Monclova Viejo to await extraditions. It's not known if he was ever extradited for the murder or not. The deputy was fired by his expectant wife and son. His wife gave birth to their daughter after his death. Thank you, God bless, and we'll see you next week on Observations.